to the passion factor, pursuing a career in human rights in conjunction with Human Rights Pulse. My name is Vicky Praise. I'm very excited to welcome Tamina Kazi, who has 13 years experience in the human rights sector in the UK, Ireland and across Europe. Tamino currently works for the Why Me charity as a project manager on a new project that aims to widen access to restorative justice for victims of crime with English as an additional language. I think it's fair to say that Tamina has had an incredibly interesting, diverse and rich career to date. Prior to her current role, Tamina organised two projects on increasing access to restorative justice for hate crime victims across London. One on LGBT hate crime and the other on all forms of hate crime in Lambeth and Southwark. From 2016 to 2018, she was a policy and advocacy officer for Cheska, an alliance of 18 equality and human rights groups in Cork, Ireland, which involved extensive policy submissions on issues like the eradication of racial and gender discrimination and the future of policing. From 2009 to 2016, she was a director of British Muslims for Secular Democracy, a registered charity which aimed to tackle both anti-Muslim sentiment and extremism. Tamina has also worked for the Equality and Human Rights Commission inquiry into the Human Rights Act and how it's been used by voluntary organisations across the UK. Tamina has also acted as a consultant to English Pen and the People's Vote campaign. Tamina, it's really wonderful to have you here on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us about where it all started for you. What motivated you to work in the human rights field? So from a very young age, I had a keen sense of fairness and justice and was motivated by a desire to right the wrongs that I saw around me. Things that wouldn't affect my classmates in any way or hardly affected them at all, such as seeing people being bullied, uh, would really get me riled up and wanting to take action. And I was actually bullied quite badly myself um, and there was no real remedy for me. That was uh, my first steps to wanting to counter injustice and that led to a strong interest in uh, politics. I studied A-level politics, which I found absolutely fascinating. And from there, I decided to study law as a degree uh, with a concentration on human rights. I've been working in, in the human rights sector ever since, and that was uh, about 15 years ago. I think that that's something that other human rights professionals always feel that there's, a, a, as you say, a sort of wrong that needs to be put right and that and then we see something and it just sparks something in us and then we sort of want to, to go from there now in that, that bio I've given just a very short potted history of of your really interesting and diverse career tell us a bit more about what has been your own career path to date to where you are now at, at why me I did a law degree at the London School of Economics graduating in 2005 and in my last year of the law degree I started off doing an unpaid internship for the organization Physicians for Human Rights. Um, I actually just saw an advert for this and I, I, in a rare display of boldness, I literally knocked on the door of the person advertising uh, and, and asked if I could just have a chat about the position. And that person let me in and his name was uh, Professor Bernie Hamilton. He was a professor of human rights at Birkbeck and he was basically my first mentor in the, in the human rights field. And we had a chat and got on very, very well and had a lot of common interests in terms of combating torture and working on behalf of victims of torture. And as a result of that, I got this internship. 
Now, I'm not a big fan of unpaid internships, but this was uh, just sporadic work from time to time. Um, so I would help Bernie Hamilton with research for reports, attend case meetings at the Human Rights Barristers Chambers, Doughty Street. And then I also attended the UN Committee Against Torture and took notes of several of their meetings. So it was, a, it was all a, a great experience for me, my first experience in human rights. I then had a brief stint working as a paralegal for the trade union law firm Thompson's. I did that for about six months and I worked in the local authority child protection department for a year. But that was a very bad experience because I, I ended up being bullied and harassed a lot by other staff members. So that, that was uh, quite negative. But then I moved on to working for the Equality and Human Rights Commission. And that was my big break, really, in, in the human rights field in terms of a paid job. And somebody called Peter Redding, who's now a senior equalities lawyer in Hong Kong, actually gave me that break. I was able to work on one of their pioneering projects, an inquiry into the Human Rights Act and how it had been used by voluntary sector organizations. So that was really me cutting my teeth in the human rights field. After that, I became the director of the charity British Muslims for Secular Democracy, which was probably the turning point of my career, the most uh, notable of all my career experiences to date, because it involved leading an organization where for the first three years, I was the only member of staff so that was very challenging I was doing the lobbying the policy work uh, communications as well as the admin and governance that goes into running a charity so fundraising liaison with the board um, a lot of charities commission and companies house returns and that was a great experience in terms of it was very formative for my career and I ended up staying there for seven years and then after that, I was a, a policy and advocacy officer for an alliance of 18 equality and human rights groups in Cork, Ireland. And I did that for two years. And that was also great. That was, I had fantastic colleagues there, worked on some really cutting edge issues in terms of Irish equalities policy. And then I did a brief stint of consultancy work for the People's Vote campaign, uh, so helping to set up their ethnic minorities for a People's Vote sub-campaign. Then I came to my current position at YME, the restorative justice charity, where I've worked for nearly two years now. That's a, a really interesting journey, and it feels like sort of every job has given you skills and you've built up and, and has been challenging along the way as well, right? Exactly. For, for people who are listening there, it shows just how wide and varied our human rights journey can be to working in the sector um, and it kind of neatly brings me to sort of the first bit of, of, of the conversation around sort of working and breaking into the sector people listening to this are at the start of their careers or, or young professionals who, who are looking to move into the sector there and I suppose the first question to you is given all of the fantastic experience that you've got is in your view what skills and qualities do you think you need to work in the human rights field given the type of work that we do on a day-to-day -day basis the obvious one would be academic ability, and this includes the ability to write well and produce high quality research. And this is prized in most career level organizations in the human rights space. However, there are people I know who are very effective and competent human rights activists, even those working in professional organizations who don't necessarily have a long list of academic credentials. 
but are motivated strongly by the need to combat injustice and have a wealth of grassroots expertise as community organizers. And some of the incredible Irish traveler women activists I met while working in Ireland and also in, in uh, Essex actually uh, during the human rights inquiry would fit this description. And I would say the top skills would be uh, documentation skills, so going out there and documenting human rights violations, human rights abuses, advocacy and communication skills, really being able to persuade politicians, policy makers of your arguments, community organizing skills, relationship building skills, which feeds very well into that, and of course a genuine passion for advancing human rights. And then in terms of qualities, I would say you need resilience, tenacity, and an ability to see things through to the very end. And resilience is important, not just because working on these issues can be quite draining, but even in terms of actually getting a job in the first place, the rate of rejections is just so high because it's such a competitive field, as we all know. So that's why resilience is, is doubly important. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more with you on, on, on all of those various skills there. And I think the starting point has to be that you have the passion for human rights work, that you have to sort of have that innate sort of sense of, as we were saying there before, the rights um, and, and wrongs, etc. Because the work is hard, it's tough, it's draining, and we'll come on to that. So that really, I think, needs to be right at the centre there. But all those other skills that you talk about, the advocacy and communication skills, we are there at human rights professionals to try and persuade governments and, and those who, you know, are breaching human rights to actually do the right thing. Exactly. And then sometimes you're, we're also persuading uh, those within certain communities who might be violating human rights too. So there's a lot of very sensitive, very delicate communications work that needs to, to go on there. Uh, sensitive in the sense that it takes a long time of uh, trying to win hearts and minds to change long-established customs and practices that violate human rights. And so kind of aligned with that sort of skills and qualities we see now that that many employers in the human rights sector are asking for an advanced degree in human rights or public international law with a human rights element to it and and that's i think becoming really sort of the, the norm now and it'd be great to sort of hear your views about that further study whether to have a kind of successful career in the human rights sector you think um you, you need that and and also the timing when, when do you think one should do a master's degree if you're going to go down that route I don't personally have a master's degree. I have my undergraduate law degree from the LSE and I later went on to do a social justice fellowship at Cambridge. But I do feel like I've missed out on certain opportunities because I lack a master's degree, even though I have over 13 years experience in the human rights field. So I would definitely advise getting one. Some places don't even shortlist candidates who lack postgraduate education. And I think that's very unfair, but that, sadly, that's the way things are. So I would recommend doing it a master's degree straight after your undergraduate degree if funding is not an issue. Yeah, no, I, as I say, I think that's it's becoming more the norm now that employers are asking for some sort of advanced degree there, and which makes it very difficult for some people because it's, it's an investment of time, it's an investment of money, as you say, and, and so it's very difficult in that respect. Exactly. So a lot of people that I support and help sort of 
ask for advice about, you know, what should I put on my CV? What looks good, you know, if, if they're applying for positions, etc. Sort of what makes a quote unquote a good human rights CV and also a cover letter. And I'm sure you've sort of sat on the other side of the table where you're interviewing people for, for positions and perhaps new entry posts. What do you think are the, are the things to highlight in a CV and a, and a cover letter? have indeed interviewed human rights professionals, both entry level and mid level uh, for posts and organizations that I've worked for. Mm -hmm. And I would say, uh, just say, get as much relevant work experience as you can, highlight your skills and achievements and your particular contributions to any team activity. That goes for CVs and cover letters. So for instance, if your team made a human rights film and you scripted it, really focus on that effort and how integral your contribution was to the success of the project. Uh, one of the, the mistakes that I used to make when I was an early career human rights professional was to use the pronoun, the term we in job interviews. So instead of sometimes instead of talking about my contribution, I just said we did this or we did that. And that's not a good way for the interviewer to find out exactly what it is you've done and how your contribution contributed to the success of the project or the success of the organization. So I would say don't fall into that trap. Don't use we. And I, I think women in particular are more likely to use that term than men do sometimes. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I think, you know, when I when talking to students there, you know, what was your added value? What did you bring to the project? Or what did you bring there? And, and show your, your, your value, exactly right, because that's what, a potential employer wants to see what, what you did personally. Um, and also it shows good team skills as well, I think, doesn't it, that you're part of that wider project? Yes, yeah, exactly. And, and anything kind of particular, because you, you your experience is, is in the not-for-profit sector and, and currently with the human rights charity, sort of people who might be thinking about that particular route, is there any particular points that you want to mention there in terms of the human rights CV cover letter? What I would look for um, is a sustained commitment to human rights work uh, through your, your work experience. And for me, this would be over and above academic results, although both are, of course, important. So I would look for someone who has gone the extra mile and shown a bit of spark, a bit of initiative. For example, setting up their own human rights blog or taking an existing organization that might be faltering and turning it around, making it a success. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Showing that you've got some creativity there, or that you've got sort of the edge. Um, and again, sort of just the last question around the sort of how to break into the sector. And we all know that really networking is really important. I think in any sector, not least in the human rights sector. And it would be great to hear from you how networking has helped you in your own career, and indeed any tips or advice you can offer for for those people who are starting out. And it might be kind of quite counterintuitive to us to sort of go out and get out to the world, but it, it is important. I think especially in this time of uh, COVID-19 with all the restrictions that we have, it's absolutely vital to use social media to do this kind of networking. So I reached out to Omar Fisher on LinkedIn and he used to work for the OSCE's Human Rights Department because I saw a post on his LinkedIn wall relating to some freedom of religion or belief training that had taken place with religious leaders in Cyprus. And I thought this was really interesting. This is exactly the kind of work that I wanted to do to be able to go out and do freedom of religion or belief training abroad. Uh, so I, I just um, messaged him and asked him if he would connect me with the, the person who was in charge of that project. 
So he connected me to a gentleman named Dr. Kishan Manocha, who used to be the OSCE's senior freedom of religion or belief advisor, and is now, um, I think, their head of tolerance and non-discrimination. So I emailed Kishan and we met, met up for a coffee. A few months later, he invited me to co-facilitate training on freedom of religion or belief to a group of students in Sarajevo, which was one of the defining moments of my career, something that I've really, really enjoyed doing. So that's where, where networking really helped me. And then, of course, it helped me in the very early days of my career. As I related before, it helped me to get an internship with Physicians for Human Rights, which basically kickstarted my entire human rights career. My top tip would be to use LinkedIn and Facebook to make connections with people who are working on the issues you care about. The worst that can happen is that they will ignore your message, and that's obviously quite frustrating. But then you just try other people who work in, this, in, in that field. And then once you've built relationships with trusted people, uh, cultivate them over the years. For example, after I left British Muslims for Secular Democracy as its director, I stayed in touch with one of the co-founders and the current chair, Yasmin Alibi Brown, and she invited me back in 2018 to, as a freelance researcher on their project on the mental health of young Muslims and how this fed into vulnerability to being radicalized. It's, it's always good to build these relationships even after you've left the organization in question. We've kind of looked at how we break into the sector and a little bit thinking more about the day-to-day, -day, what is life like as a human rights professional? And I always ask my guests to sort of describe a typical day in their life. Now, your day might not be a typical day, but, but give us a sense of, of what you would do in, on a regular day, I suppose. Well, here's a description of a recent day that I've had in my current role. So I would spend the morning drafting and filming an insight talk on LGBT hate crime and restorative justice for the EU Forum on Restorative Justice Winter Academy. So normally this would, of course, take place in real life, but because of COVID and the restrictions, um, we've been asked to film uh, the insight talks in advance for Winter Academy participants to view later, and then to have a, a recorded Q&A session further down the line. And then I would speak to restorative justice practitioners in different parts of England and Wales about providing case studies on restorative justice for people with English as an additional language needs. I would liaise with my colleagues to organize a roundtable to share insights and good practice in this area. And finally, I would work with victim support about writing a blog on this issue, which showcases their new research on the area. So very varied in terms of what your day looks like. Yeah. And kind of lots, lots of skills, different skills being deployed across, you know, through your day, I think. And I've always gone for roles that are very varied because I would just, quite frankly, if I was doing the same thing day in, day out, I'd get very bored. So <laughs> I've always gone for varied roles. Yeah. What has been for you the highlight of your career to date, thinking back sort of to you know, the 13 years that you've been working in the sector? In 2009, when I was working at BMSD, uh, we co-organised the first protest against Al-Muhajirun which is a, an extremist group, which was later banned by the Home Secretary. And British Muslims for Secular Democracy became the first British Muslim organization to challenge them in public 
something that a lot of Muslims and Muslim organizations had wanted to do, but had not been able to do. And this demonstration that I helped to organize was attended by over 100 people in Piccadilly Circus, including the former Czech president, the late Václav Havel. So that was a, a real coup. It got media coverage across the political spectrum. So that was a big achievement for me. And then I, I've also been involved in working on and publishing some pioneering research, such as a, a research project on factors affecting the political choices of Muslim students, as well as the research that I mentioned before on the mental health of young Muslims and how different factors in their lives could potentially affect their vulnerability to being radicalized. And then I also worked on uh, something called the Bridging Voices program, which is an initiative funded by the British Council US to promote dialogues on religious literacy, to encourage religious literacy on, on various issues. And this involved coordinating with project partners in the UK, the US and Denmark to produce a series of policy dialogue events in London and, and at Capitol Hill, Washington DC, as well as film screenings of a film called Ijtihad in both countries. And Ijtihad was a film which featured nine progressive uh, Muslim voices uh, speaking of, about a range of topical issues, including myself. And then it, it also involved filming two short videos, one on Muslim women's dress codes and the other on Christian Muslim relations. And the one on Muslim women's dress codes ended up going viral on the Everyday Feminism Facebook page. So that was really nice. And then when I worked in Cork for the Cork Equal and Sustainable Communities Alliance, I, I co-organized Cork's first World Music Day event with migrants and travelers as performers. Then on top of that, I'd say the freedom of religion or belief training that I did in Bosnia last year. And then finally, although this hasn't been part of my jobs as such, but something that I did outside my paid work is writing and publishing a short story on LGBT life in Iran and being able to perform it at various venues like the University of Leicester and the Polari Literary Salon in London. So those have been the real highlights over the past 13, 14 years. Really meaningful and wonderful kind of things that you've done there. And as I say, it sounds like, you know, they've, they've been real high spots for you in terms of your, of your career. And you, you mentioned that when we were talking there about the masters that you met somebody at Birkbeck who was a sort of mentor to you. And it brings me to sort of think about, you know, who made a difference to your career and why, and, and the value of, of mentorship throughout one's human rights careers journey. I think it's very important to have a mentor and somebody who travels along with us. And it might be different mentors at different times, but what, what do you think about that whole issue? I think mentors are absolutely crucial. Um, so yes, uh, Professor Bernie Hamilton uh, was my first mentor. Sadly, he passed away about a year or so after I'd finished that particular internship. So that, that was very sad. He inspired a lot of people to go into the human rights field. And then at the Equality and Human Rights Commission, I had a mentor, Peter Redding, again, who, who hired me for the position in the first place. And as I say, gave me my first sort of break in the human rights sector. And he was in incredibly encouraging and supportive. And one of my uh, closest friends, Sean Risdale, who I also met at the, while working at the Equality and Human Rights Commission, because he took me out to the Dale Farm Traveller site to uh, conduct interviews with travellers on the, how their human rights had been violated by the local authority. 
And Sean and I have stayed in touch for the last 12 years. He's become one of my closest friends and he, he's mentored me on every aspect of my career to date, really, um, and also my creative writing. So I don't, I don't know where I'd be without him in that, in that regard. Um, and then there's uh, women like Susie Allegre, who I also met at the Equality and Human Rights Commission. Who, she's given me a lot of feedback on things like job applications and sent particular jobs and consultancies my way. And she's been a real a source of support over the last few years, as well as a, an excellent mentor named Liz Griffin who has been, uh, again, absolutely invaluable with, with her expertise in this area. So those have been my, my main human rights mentors. And then, of course, I, my, my husband and family have been fantastic. They've supported me the whole way through. It's been important to have a good network of people around us in the human rights, because it can be very difficult work. And, and, and actually, that really, I suppose, brings me on to the, to the last sort of little bit of our discussion is, is that point that it's very hard work, very tough work, emotionally challenging. We're dealing with really difficult issues. It can be physically demanding. And I think burnout and exhaustion are real issues for us as human rights professionals. So having that network around us is, is really valuable. But on the wider piece around sort of self-care and resilience, perhaps to share your own experiences with us, but also what advice you can offer to those people who are thinking about a career in the human rights sector and, and this bit of the, the, the sector that's not often not, not discussed or maybe a bit more so now. But. I got extremely burnt out after my experience of being the director of British Muslims for Secular Democracy. I, it's not really a nine to five job. Uh, you ended up being called upon at various times to admin the organization's Facebook group. And then that was a really demanding job or sub job on top of the regular job um, because sometimes I'd be up at one o'clock in the morning um, correcting somebody because they stepped out of line and broken the the forum's rules and so that was really hard I remember well in 2015 uh, my first marriage was collapsing at that time as well so at that time I just became I, I just started to feel really really burnt out and thought I need a change I need a change of scene a change of pace so I was applying for jobs in Ireland and I ended up getting the Cork Equal and Sustainable Communities Alliance role in 2016. And what really helped me there was to be able to work three days a week. And I've done this uh, for a number of years to either work three or four days a week. And it means that I can combine my consultancy work or caring responsibilities or hobbies and interests more effectively with my main job and create a better work-life balance. Uh, so at the moment for Why Me, I'm working three days a week, it's, but it's still quite difficult to juggle work plus the Freedom of Religion or Belief Train the Trainers course that I've been doing for the last 10 weeks and creative writing with being a, a mother of a 13-month-old son. It's, it's a very hard uh, balancing act, but Thankfully, I do have good childcare and a, a good support network from my family. So that's really helped. So in terms of advice that I would offer to listeners, I would say try and find part time work if you end up feeling burnt out, if you're in this sector for a number of years and to cultivate a strong support network with people who genuinely care about you and conversely shut out those who try and make you feel small and that your activism won't amount to anything. Uh, and I've had those people as well. Um, recently, somebody who I hadn't heard from in many years got back in touch 
And this person had said um, at the time, uh, something like 15 years ago when I knew him, that my activism wouldn't amount to anything. And obviously I clearly showed him, <laughs> you know. Uh, and then this person was in touch again to say that I shouldn't be sending my son to a childminder and that he should be spending time with family. So I, I, I had no hesitation about cutting this person off, you know, after <laughs> making comments like that. Um, so, and I'd also say, uh, don't neglect your personal life. Take the time to find a good supportive partner if that's important to you. Uh, it really pays dividends to have that kind of support at home after a hard day or a hard week in the office. Yeah, no, very wise words. And I think, you know, it's a difficult sector to be in. It can be hugely rewarding, but, but it can also impact upon us in, in, in very profound ways. So the, the network and, and that self-care is, is very, very valuable. Absolutely. So bringing this kind of conversation to, to a close, and, and I suppose um, any final sort of words of wisdom that you want to impart um, to, to those people who are, who are listening here in terms of just going forward in their hu own human rights journey, whatever that may be and whatever shape it might take. I would say uh, find your niche and become really, really good at it, because this is, as I said before, this is a highly competitive space. Think about what you can bring to the table that no one else can. Maybe it's the ability to make short and snappy TikTok videos on human rights topics or to fictionalize human rights stories and to tell them in a really compelling way. So that would be in terms of actions you can take. But this also applies to areas of work. So, for example, when British Muslims for Secular Democracy was set up, it was the only British Muslim charity that was actively working on issues of freedom of religion or belief from a secular Muslim point of view. So that was its niche, its unique selling point. So try and find that with your own activism or for any initiatives or organisations that you might want to set up. And secondly, I would warn against attaching yourself to causes that are partisan and only claim human rights protections for their own group and no one else's. And even worse would be causes that cynically and opportunistically use the language of equality and human rights for their own ends when they don't actually believe in human rights values. These are wise words indeed, and I think you know, I hope people will, will listen to those carefully and, and, and sort of take them on board. Tamina, it's been a pleasure to, to have you and thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule to, to talk to me and to, for, for the listeners to, to listen to a really interesting human rights journey that you've had. So a huge big thank you. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Passion Factor, pursuing a career in human rights. Until the next time. Mm -hmm.